0: Listen to The Amendment Now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Before we get started with today's episode, here's a quick message about a podcast from Ozzy Take On America. Are all black men progressive? Are all Asian American millennials politically engaged? This special audio series brings together people of the same race or ethnic background in order to shine a spotlight on their diversity and cut through the cultural stereotypes. Explore the range of opinions among groups of people who are often presumed to vote as a block. Get an inside look into the conversations these communities are having among themselves. Based on the groundbreaking TV show, Take on America with Ozzy is now available as a podcast. Check it out. Take on America, the podcast, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Hi, this is Jenny Kaplan. Welcome to our latest bonus episode of Women Belong in the House. The midterms are just around the corner, so on top of our regularly scheduled narrative-style episodes, we're bringing you lightly edited interviews with experts, thought leaders, and people standing up to help women get elected. I'm so excited today to bring you my interview with feminist journalist Rebecca Traister. Cool. So, um, to start very with something quite easy, if you could just tell me your name and a little bit about what you do.
0: Yeah, I'm Rebecca Traister. I'm a feminist journalist. I write about politics, media, entertainment, culture, and social movements from a feminist perspective. I am a writer-at-large at New York Magazine and The Cut, and I'm the author of Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger, which is my third book. It was published at the beginning of October 2018, and it is about the history and future
1: of women's anger as politically consequential. How did you start writing on this, on feminism and and feminist politics and culture and media? How did you get into this?
0: I guess I started to learn to become a journalist when I was about 25.
1: I got my first job
0: as a fact checker at a weekly newspaper called the New York Observer. But I grew up in an era, I was born in 1975. My childhood and teenage years were uh, definitely in a period of tremendous anti-feminist backlash, the 1980s and 1990s. I Grew up interested in feminism and and gender politics and all kinds of and and looking at inequality, uh, gendered inequality, racial inequality, economic inequality. I had those interests, but I could not have ever imagined making a career out of them when I was a young person. And I became a journalist in my mid twenties. I did not write about feminism. I wrote about the film industry. I was assigned to write the gossip column. I wrote about real estate, things that my editors assigned me to do. And then I was uh, I I got a job at a at an internet publication called Salon in 2003. And there, it was an editorial staff where so many of my editors and managers were women. And some of my personal interest in feminism began to express itself in my work. I was given a lot more space to have a voice. And the sort of rudimentary feminist journalism I was doing then, you know, uh, got traffic, and which meant that there was an interest coming from my institution that I write more about feminism, and so I began to develop a beat. And at first, it was about sort of covering pop culture from a feminist perspective. I mean, back then I was writing about, you know, Paris Hilton and Whitney Houston and Britney Spears from a feminist perspective. And then uh, it began to increasingly include coverage of the women's movement, controversies around the word feminism, the way that the conversation about reproductive rights and justice was taking form, and conflicts within that movement. And then In part, when Hillary Clinton first ran for president in 2006, 7, leading into 2008, suddenly uh, my feminism was uh, critical to the coverage of a presidential campaign in a way that it never had been before or hadn't been within my adult lifetime. So that is how my beat began to develop. And then it's and it's certainly changed. And I've learned a lot over the course of those 15 years. But that is the story of how I got here.
1: I'm really interested in your book. It sort of mirrors. It sounds like your personal experience that you write about decades of a feminist deep freeze. And I'm wondering what you think caused that to defrost, what you think sort of brought us to this moment where we're really talking about feminism again in a different way.
0: After disruptive gains have been made um, in the challenge of a power system and that, you know, that It's
1: not just when it comes
0: to the women's movement, it's the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement. There is very often a pushback and a backlash, a vilification of those who've launched the challenges or voiced their dissent and done work that's wound up changing the rules or expectations in a way that is discomforting to those who historically have wielded power. There's a pushback. There was a vilification of feminists themselves, um, a sort of cartoon of them as sexless, humorless, angry, you know, unattractive heritans that that took hold. And in part it was in the wake of this disruption to the culture, you know, the 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 women's movement of the 1960s and 70s had really really did make legal changes around hiring discrimination, employment discrimination, educational discrimination. It opened all kinds of educational and professional and economic doors for for women, especially you know, middle class more privileged women. But that disturbed the hold of power that had historically been gripped by by privileged white men and um, who still had enormous influence over the culture and the stories we tell about America. And so the punishment was a vilification of those who'd done that disrupting. But then there was another generation. To some extent, it was my generation. To some extent, it was people who were younger than me who came along in the wake of that second wave and who were hungry for further acknowledgement of continuing inequality when it comes to gender, race, and economic stability. And uh, I think that, you know, we hadn't borne the brunt of the post-feminist vilification, right, of the that anti-feminist backlash. It wasn't, wasn't our generation who sort of had to pay the toll for having been the disruptors. And so I think there was a degree to which younger women could come at it with energy and fresh eyes and not having already suffered the the punitive backlash and we're, we were eager to uh, open that conversation up again and so I think that was it was time and another a fresh generation of women who helped to thaw that deep freeze
1: a quick aside this episode is brought to you by audible we're talking about rebecca's latest book good and mad the revolutionary power of women's anger you can find it on audible and you can even get it for free with a 30-day trial membership If you go to audibletrial.com slash women belong in the house, I highly recommend it. Seriously, I finished it in a day. Go to audibletrial.com slash women belong in the house. So we're really focusing specifically on this election right now uh, with our show. And I'm wondering, I would love to just hear your general thoughts. This is a historic election. A record number of women are running. And I'm wondering how this election cycle feels different compared to the 2016 election and to previous elections. What feels different to you?
0: I'm very hesitant about making anything like a prediction about any election that's going to happen, and especially one coming our way, in part because to me so much feels different. I mean, the whole point, and, you know, I'm in a business where certainty and predictions are rewarded. You know, people on cable news want to say this is what's going to happen and this is what the polls mean and everything. But I really distrust that in part because what we're seeing is it's unprecedented or at least unprecedented within contemporary memory. So you have on the one hand all kinds of efforts to suppress vote, votes and that those are really working right? You know, we, we can see the Supreme Court just upheld a decision in North Dakota that effectively disenfranchises Native Americans. Brian Kemp, as Secretary of State in Georgia, is suppressing the votes of, you know, tens of thousands of Georgians, the majority of them African American, which is particularly egregious. I mean, it's egregious by any, by any stretch of anyone's imagination. But Kemp himself is running for governor against Stacey Abrams, who would be the nation's first Black woman governor. You see voter purges happening in states around the country. So in some ways, the government is moving in states and across the country is moving us back closer to uh, uh, voting circumstances in the Jim Crow South, for instance, when you know disenfranchisement was key to the perpetuation of the, the way that the government worked and who held power. At the same time, you also see real efforts to activate parts of the electorate um, who have not historically been reliable voters. That's something that's also in play, for example, in Georgia, where for years the New Georgia Project has been working to reach voters who are often left out by candidates and political parties, especially voters of color and, and poor voters who historically haven't been treated by parties and their machinery as viable voters. There have been real efforts in lots of states to expand the electorate in that direction, at the same time that state legislatures and courts are working to shrink the electorate. You also see the activation of suburban white women who have been, perhaps they have been Democratic voters in the past, perhaps some of them have even been reliable Democratic voters, but many of these newly activated women have not historically been Democratic activists. And the fury in the wake of the election of Donald Trump has propelled so many of them into a kind of constant activism. The case of somebody like your mom who's running for office, and so many of the women, and especially women of color, who are first time candidates running for office in part because they're livid about the way that certain kinds of inequalities have been exposed to them have been made clear. So you see a whole new roster of candidates who are not like candidates who've come before. You see simultaneous attempts to expand the electorate and the energies of previously kind of apathetic or passive participants in the electoral process are now full-time energized participants in that in that process and you see efforts to expand Parts of an electorate that have not historically been energized. So I don't think, with all of these things happening simultaneously, that anybody up there telling you that just because this happened in, you know, 1972 or 1992 or even in 2008, um, that we can expect to see this happening now. I don't think anybody actually knows what's about to happen.
1: Totally. I think it's impossible to predict. Even here, I'm actually home in North Carolina and it's crazy to hear. We There were just reports in the newspaper about uh, problems with voting machines here.
0: Yes, and I, that's in Georgia, too. Right. I've seen the NWCP is suing because uh, machines are apparently, I mean, the
1: reports are that machines are turning votes for Stacey Abrams to votes for Brian Kemp. Which is just nuts. It's horrifying. <laughs> Going to something that, that we can talk about with more certainty, I wonder what you think was the inspiration, you touched on this a little bit in your last answer, the inspiration for women who stepped up to run this election. What do you think is behind that movement that caused so many people to raise their hand?
0: Well, I think it's very, I mean, it's a variety of things. For some people, it was actually the loss of Hillary Clinton. You know, we'd been, we'd, many people had been assured that as, in fact, somebody who had worked her way up through a Democratic Party system and wielded so much power within it, Clinton was the establishment. She was practically already the president. She was inevitable. And I think that the idea that she would lose, especially in a pattern that is so familiar to so many women who are not in politics, the sort of being passed over for a job for an incompetent man. I mean, lots of people had many feelings about Hillary Clinton, both positive and negative, on the right and the left. But there's there's no question that she was deeply prepared equipped, competent, completely ready for the job, the most qualified person for the job. And instead, this sort of know-nothing toddler with no experience, no qualification of the job got the job. And that is a very familiar experience, regardless of how you feel about Hillary Clinton politically. That you know, was such a resonant result for so many women across the country that I think that activated them. Then, of course, there were those who were real Hillary supporters who were so angry at her loss because she wasn't going to be the president that it sent them out to run because they were so furious about gender inequality. Then there were the people who may not have had any investment in Hillary Clinton or her candidacy, but are were so upset by the election of Donald Trump, who'd come to power on an openly racist, xenophobic, misogynistic ticket. And um, you know, just openly express, expressing these biases as a form of building support, winning not in spite of them, but in some cases because of them. So all those reactions to the election itself were part of what propelled women out the doors. You've seen more specific versions of anger. For example, in the Virginia elections, the special elections at the end of 2017, Danica Rome, the first transgender person elected to the Virginia House of Delegates, she ran against a man who had been behind the, ba- the transphobic bathroom bill. That was a very specific form of anger. The same thing for a politician in New Jersey named Ashley Bennett, who was so angry at a local freeholder who mocked and derided women who'd gone to the Women's March, making a joke about how would they be home in time to cook dinner, that she ran against him and she won his seat. So you see also see more specific you know, points of fury um, that motivated some women to run. I think in part it was this, and this happened in 1991 when Anita Hill testified and was treated so badly, actually by both Republicans and Democrats, this all-white, all-male Senate Judiciary Committee, when she testified that she'd been sexually harassed by Clarence Thomas. And what that did in part was give the United States a view of how white and how male its governing bodies were. And that prompted a lot of women to run for office and a lot of women to give them money and to sort of build a new infrastructure. You know, that's part of when the PAC EMILY's list got got so powerful because women wanted to find a way to to offer economic financial support and fundraising dollars to women, pro-choice Democratic women who wanted to run for office. And I think that you see a lot of those patterns happening now, too. There was a sense of how, you know, rigged The system was and a real view of of white male power that became very clear, especially given the fact that Donald Trump was elected, you know, by an electoral college, despite losing the the popular vote a month after, you know, he was caught on tape talking about grabbing women against their will, and that there was an outpouring of women's fury in response to that, women, millions of women telling the stories of how they too had been groped or harassed or assaulted, and that it didn't matter, that in fact the guy could still be elected president. And that sort of realization, I think, sparked a lot of women to say we have to change the system in part by running to participate in it.
1: I've been closer to this election than any previous election, just given the fact that my mom (laughs) is running. And so I've seen firsthand debates about how angry is too angry when it comes to responding to things like lying ads and policies that are just honestly infuriating. And I'm wondering, given your study of the power of women's anger and the reactions to that emotion, I wonder how you would advise women to deal with that struggle how you see that sort of debate changing over time about how to express your anger yes about how and and whether you know whether candidates should express their anger what it means uh what sort of the reaction is
0: a big part of this book is not about advising women regarding any other way to express their anger because i think that there are so many look we live and work and make our way and, and, you know, run our campaigns and, you know, try to control the trajectory of our careers in a system and a structure that is not built to welcome or make space or treat women's dissatisfaction with respect. And there's I can't, I don't want to add to the chorus of instructions about how to best use or not use or strategically manipulate the the rage that you feel about inequity um, in terms of how you speak publicly. I would never, for example, you know, listening to Christine Blasey Ford and acknowledging the fact that she could, though she had so much to be reasonably furious about, she could never have expressed that anger and been heard um, or had, it would have undermined her ability to have her story believed. And I just don't want to add to the chorus of, you know, people making recommendations about how women express their anger. To me, the necessary thing we have to do is alter the system that doesn't make room for that anger. And the best way we can do that is to listen to, be curious about, ask after the anger of other women. When they do express it, to take it seriously, to listen to what that anger is trying to show us about what's broken in the world and what needs to be fixed, to treat it as informative and diagnostic, to really try to absorb what people who are at a power deficit are trying to tell us about what that experience uh, is like. So it's actually, my advice is more about how we receive anger, not how we express it. Because the fact is, you know, I could go around and say, be more unapologetic in your anger and rage on and, you know, say why you're angry. But the fact is, in in this world, that can lead to losing votes. It can lead to losing support. It can lead to not getting a promotion. It can lead to, if you express anger and you're a woman of color who's pulled over for no good reason and you're furious and you express that to your arresting officer, that can lead to your physical harm to to being shot or incarcerated. Um, I can't tell women responsibly to go ahead and do something different in terms of how they express their anger because I'm all too aware of the censure that they face and the, and the possible punitive reaction to it. So the only thing I can advise is that we try to alter the, the way that that women's anger, that women's anger is censured and, and deplored. And the way that we do that is by opening our own ears and our own um, minds and and trying to hear the anger around us differently.
1: I loved in Good and Mad when you talk about um, about crying and the power of tears from some and not from others and and how it relates to anger. And I wonder how you think the portrayal of women's vulnerability has changed over time um, in the news and and how we think about it sort of in our culture and um, whether you think it has changed in the political and corporate worlds. Hmm, that's a great question. I don't know how much it's changed. I mean, the the
0: I certainly remember, you know, during the 2008 campaign, the moment that Hillary Clinton got congested, she didn't even cry. I mean, I've watched that tape a million times because I wrote a book about that election. You know, not a teardrop fell, but... All the headlines were about how Hillary cried, Hillary cried, and it was read at the time, you know, and then the the setup behind Hillary crying in New Hampshire in 2008 was she was widely, you know, believed to be the inevitable Democratic nominee and then Barack Obama won the Iowa caucuses and the second contest was New Hampshire and people were so surprised and excited about Obama's win and so and you know Hillary was very quickly vilified by the mainstream press and they were writing her off immediately you know after having lost iowa and basically saying oh she's 10 points behind in new hampshire she's going to lose she's going to be out of the primaries this inevitable candidate is going to be brought low and that weekend in new hampshire she was campaigning in new hampshire she was 10 points down in the polls and it did seem quite likely that her presidential campaign was going to end right there and she kind of let herself be angry she talked back to chris matthews she snapped at a couple of guys who stood up in a uh, auditorium with a sign that said iron my shirt and called it sexism. And up until that point, she'd been very, very reticent about talking about any kind of gender dynamics or the historic nature of her run. She basically wasn't acknowledging that she was, you know, trying to become the first woman major party presidential nominee. But that weekend, maybe, like, she just thought she was going to lose and she kind of let loose and, and was more expressive. And the final thing that happened was that she asked how she does it. She kind of teared up. Now, I don't know why she, she didn't tear. She didn't cry, as I said. She just got kind of stuffy and her voice broke. I don't know what made her emotional. It could be that she was angry. It could be that she was tired. It could be any number of things. But what happened is there was a huge upset. The next day, even though she was 10 points down in the polls, she won the New Hampshire primary, and she won because women voted for her in massive numbers. That was always read by the press. I just think about it, your question about, like, how is this understood? How are women's tears understood? So it was reported, like, as if she'd, like, sobbed copiously, which was not true, but that was how it was made to seem. And then the press interpreted that victory as having been about vulnerability, right? That women love to see another woman crying. That women love to see a, a woman vulnerable. And that Hillary Clinton, who'd been so tough and strong and inevitable, And she was the big, you know, the one who was going to win the nomination. And then she'd been brought low and was made vulnerable. And women love that. And there was this kind of soggy sisterhood. And even back then, before I sort of was thinking of anger in this way, my take on that was I think women were pissed off. I think women, even those who didn't necessarily love Hillary Clinton, were pretty pissed off at the way that the mainstream political media was like dancing on her grave and that they went and voted for her in part out of anger. That was my guess. There's no way to ever say what's right or what's wrong about that. But my view back then, and it and it stays that way, is that that was a misinterpreted moment where the tears that she didn't even really shed came to stand in for some imagined sort of soggy, vulnerable sisterhood. When, in fact, I think my view then was that what was happening is that women voters were really livid at how she was being treated by the political press. And they went and they voted for her in part out of spite. So. You know, that's a recent—I mean, it's not that recent at this point. It's 10 years ago. But there still is an impulse to treat a woman, a crying woman, especially a crying white woman. Within a white patriarchy, white women are more easily recognized as traditionally feminine and appealing and vulnerable if they shed tears. And and there's a—so there's an impulse to treat a woman who's crying as vulnerable as opposed to a woman who's raging as formidable or threatening.
1: We're looking at gender, but we're also looking at all different facets of identity and how they impact candidates. And I wonder, I know you write a lot about this in terms of the intersection of race and gender and anger and how all of these different identities that we hold affect the way that we're perceived. And so I wonder if you could tell me how, how you've seen especially race and anger play out in this election and how that compares perhaps to previous elections when we look back. Hmm. In this, you mean in 2018? Yeah, I... I it could be broader. We could say in the past few elections, or I, I'm really just interested in your perspective on how race and gender combine in terms of when we think about candidates and, and how we perceive them as voters and how they're perceived by media and, and how these different identities stack on top of each other.
0: So anger of women of color and especially black women um, is particularly, um, it's fetishized in a couple of very particular ways in this country. The angry black woman. Um, is a kind of caricature that has come to, in the book I write about black women describing the way they're perceived as angry, whether or not they've even, you know, offered up the mildest complaint, that there has been a whole character built around the notion of angry black womanhood. And that character is alternately either almost comical And cartoonish. And uh, there's, you know, I write in the book about the way that black women's anger is sometimes used as a meme or a gif to do the work of expressing the anger of white women. And that you get a lot of that, like with Maxine Waters, for instance, over the past couple of years, the California Congresswoman, who's been such a, a vociferous and brilliant challenger to Donald Trump and his administration. And often her exertions on this front are used as a kind of like song, like a, you know, there's somebody wrote a gospel song to what she, she said she was reclaiming her time. And that became a very popular meme and gif. And there's the, the view of her looking over her glasses with dismay. Maxine Waters giving side eye and, and, you know, on the one hand, she's being hailed and appreciated for her willingness to show anger and to challenge a uh, white patriarchal Republican authority in the form of Donald Trump and the Republican Party. But she's also being used as a kind of shorthand communicator of that anger. And meanwhile, she's bearing the brunt of it. So not just on the right wing, but in the mainstream media, she's being talked about as if she's a militant threat. There's an instance that I describe in my book of her sort of saying, like, I'm going to go take out Trump tonight, meaning that you know she's gotten so much inspiration from a from a gala event a progressive for a progressive institution that it's given her the spirit that she's going to go you know work to impeach him that night but it was it was dishonestly read not just by those on the far right but by you know a kind of mainstream political media as a threat against his life meanwhile while the while the actual president is out there shouting, lock her up, and sort of talking about the good old days when protesters were taken out of rallies on stretchers, you know, he actually talks about violence, you know, just... Just a few days ago, he celebrated the political candidate who'd body slammed a reporter who'd asked him a tough question. And yet it's it's Maxine Waters who's depicted, and this is, I mean, I, I cite from an interview she did with Chris Cuomo, not, you know, a Fox News guy, but a mainstream political guy questioning, doesn't did you mean to threaten the president physically? You know, it sounded like you were calling for his assassination. There's this militarizing and vilification and making monstrous of Black women's rage that is... You know, a a whole other angle on the way in which women's rage more broadly is discouraged and marginalized. And so there's no way to talk about women's rage without looking particularly at the way the figure of the angry black woman has been depicted and vilified culturally and politically. That said, one of the things that's happening in this election is that you have – so many women running—you know—a historic number of women running. Many of them, women of color, who are being very open about their challenges to power. This was Ayanna Presley in in Boston, who was running against a long-time, moderate, but by and large, well-liked, older white man within the Democratic Party, and she won against him in a primary. And she was an open challenger to, you know, an old establishment democrat you have stacey abrams who's running to be the governor of georgia and if elected she would be the first black woman governor in the history of the united states her style of oratory is incredibly energizing but she's also you know she's deeply passionate and loud there's lucy mcbath whose son was killed And she is running and make very clear that part of why she's running is about anger, you know, in response to the gun death of her of her son. So I think you're seeing a whole range of models of women candidates and especially women of color who are broadening our idea of what
1: leadership and what campaigning can look like. Something that I found that I find really interesting is trying to think about where incumbent women fit in all of this. Um, In Good and Mad, you talk about the challenges that face women who have successfully risen through the current power structure. Hillary Clinton is, I think, probably the most obvious example. But the challenges that face those women who have risen up and then are trying to connect with, with people who have not. And I wonder how you think women in power will be challenged by a new movement of women who are running, if they will be challenged, what that relationship looks like. (sighs) Well, you know, in nature, i.e. the history of white male
0: politics, (laughs) this has happened for eons. You know, you have a generation like it's normal for white men to run against each other, including white men of, you know, similar ideology, same party to challenge each other within primaries. You know, some of the most um, vicious primary campaigns where the, the, you know, Jimmy Carter and Ted Kennedy, um, you know, Howard Dean and. And John Terry. I mean, the, you know, it's it is natural for for candidates to challenge each other. And because. Historically, women have been fewer in numbers and on the outside of political power, and they have often been the only ones out there, you know, challenging. But as we elect more women, we will also have to normalize the idea of women competing against each other and not just, you know, a Republican woman versus a Democratic woman, which is one version we have to get past and normalize so that we get beyond, you know, thinking of it as a catfight or a hair pull or whatever, you know, fetishistic term we have when women disagree with each other politically or in any other way. But we also have to get to a point where we can normalize the idea of of women, perhaps within the same party, running against each other. Um, there's a candidate who I write about in my book in Colorado, Syrah Rao, who challenged Diana DeGette for her house seat. She she didn't win, but that challenge was met with an enormous amount of blowback, and a lot of it was racialized. Syrah Rao is a brown woman challenging a white woman who'd already been in office, and there was, she got an enormous amount of racist blowback in response and it has prompted in her, she describes in my book, a kind of anger that is particularly about white supremacy within a feminist or women's movement and within progressive coalitions. These are really, you know, these are uncomfortable realities. I've seen a number of races this year where there were women, you know, open primaries where there were multiple candidates, several of them women, Um, I watched in. You know my parents' district uh they were very anxious they they like like me are left leaning voters, and they had a primary where it was a a man who'd actually represented our you know our district in various ways for years who was a very familiar older white democratic man whose name was the most familiar on the ballot to me who hasn't lived there in a long time and then there were two women, one a very left woman and one more of a sort of democratic party approved slightly more center woman, and they were very nervous. They wanted to vote for the left woman But they said, oh, I'm very scared that the women are going to split the votes and that if we vote for the left woman, we should just all, you know, maybe I should vote for the center woman who's more likely to win. And I told them this was in the spring. And I said, just vote. God, there's never been a better year to just vote for who you believe in. Vote for the left woman. And they did. She didn't win. But guess what? She came in second. The guy came in third. And there's this old belief that, you know, if women run against each other, they'll split the votes and they'll, you know, but that, at least in the primary season of 2018, turned out not to be the case. There were many races in which women came in first and second, and having them run against each other did not take away from the chance of a woman winning this is this is a model we have to get used to changing and it's it's often going to be difficult and that you're going to find women who are criticized for challenging a, a groundbreaking woman who's been in power we see this around the conversation around nancy pelosi as as leader of the democrats in the house and she's exceptionally good at her job which is an organizational and um You know, managerial job. Basically, she herds her party, she herds the cats, and she's been historically very great at it. But there's obviously a generational itch um, to get some of the women who are, you know, we hope are going to be pouring into the house, um, you know, to start rising within leadership and challenging some of the leadership that's been in place at this point for for more than a decade and uh you know these are going to be difficult conversations and they're going to have a series of different outcomes but this is just what we have to get used to as we begin to treat women candidates and candidates of color you know as normal as just candidates and politicians and leaders in the way that we've always understood white men to be natural candidates and leaders and politicians
1: as we Start incorporating and thinking about making that norm- more normal. I feel like part of that is incorporating women into the system that already exists and the way that things already work. But I wonder how you think more women in office will change things. How you think women in office might make things better or different?
0: Well, it depends on which women. There are all kinds of women who, are, who run for office, who support policies that don't benefit women. Or those who don't already have power. There are lots of conservative women who's who are valued within their party, in part because they do the work of giving voice and support and defense to policies that marginalize non-white, non-men. And as women, it's harder to accuse them of being anti-women, right? So... You have a history of very conservative politicians who are female and some who are politicians of color doing the work of supporting a fundamentally white patriarchal power structure. So it's not that just the election of women is going to do it. Similarly, within democratic politics, you have a range of policy positions and women politicians who tend to run closer to the center and women politicians who run to the left. I'm a person who favors left policy, and so I'm especially excited about in part because I think left economic policy in particular and, and left foreign policy are better for, for more vulnerable populations and for getting something somewhere closer to equality and full inclusion for all kinds of people. But, you know, there, there are going to be female co- politicians all across the spectrum. Now, I do believe there's a net good, even, you know— <sighs> You know, I believe that having representational bodies that actually represent the the population that they govern, tax and police, is key. Um, I think having governing bodies that actually look like the populations they they govern, um, is an, is a net good. I also think that part of getting toward gender equality, which is one element of it, is having women to vote vociferously against in addition to having women to vote enthusiastically for. And there's a famous line, the second wave feminist Bella Abzug said, you know, feminism isn't just about getting the next female Einstein, it's about, you know, making sure that the next female Schlemiel can get the promotion as quickly as the male Schlemiel can. And there's something to that, right? When we hold women to a higher bar and say they have to be better than all those who've preceded them, we're creating a barrier to their full inclusion. So, all that said, I expect that a an imaginary future in which we had, a, you know, fully gendered, racially integrated governing bodies you'd have women of all kinds of varying qualities in those, in that governing body. Um, And I think that would be better, but that's not to say that all the women who wind up getting elected to office are going to be naturally better leaders. Lots of the qualities that we, that, that tend to get ascribed to women, like they're more collaborative or they listen more. Some of those qualities are prompted by inequality, right? And there are lots of women who've been forced to collaborate in part because they haven't had a grip on power. And if we actually altered the power structure, I don't think we can make big claims about exactly how women would behave within a power structure where they had equal access to that kind of power. And yet, I'm very much on the side of getting women
1: to that place where they do have full access. Have you, by any chance, read the book, The Power? (laughs) Because it's sort of... Oh, God, yes. (laughs) I was
0: thinking about it. I almost brought it up in that answer. But I think that book is really remarkable because it does get to exact... I've always believed this. I mean, people say, oh, well, women... No, it is true, given the current... The way we attach. Sexual power to masculinity, in part because men have more power. You get this kind of some of the ads we've seen this year, which actually, you know, the like, who's less likely to show their penis in a meeting? The candidate who doesn't have one? I mean, there's that attorney general candidate in Michigan, right, who made that ad. It was hilarious. There's this sense that women are less likely to sexually harass, though we do know that there are women who have a history of sexual harassment when they've had positions of power within their institutions. But because they've had so much less power and because the associations between sexual power and economic power and political power and professional public power are so much – they're, in fact, the reverse for many women than they are for men. Those same expectations and patterns aren't necessarily in place. But, you know, if we actually altered a power structure and, you know, women – well, I don't know what would happen if if, there were, if power were actually equally shared because that's a – you know – <laughs> so hard to imagine. But if you simply reversed it and offered women a kind of domination that historically has belonged to men, you know, yeah, I think that women would be just as venal and abusive and corrupt as men have been permitted to be. I think power and the way it's unevenly distributed is is responsible, you know, leads to its abuse, regardless of whose hands it's in.
1: Yeah, I found that book. I, I couldn't stop thinking about it because of that exact question, because of you know, it isn't whether there was equal power. it's if it were totally switched. Um, and that's what I think what's so interesting right. is it's almost impossible to imagine what the world would be like if it were equal or approaching equal power. Yeah, um, and right. I think for a lot of us, for i I know you mentioned this in your book, but definitely I kind of felt until a few years ago I was like, okay, cool, I grew up in a in an age where sexism's just sort of over. where it's like not something i necessarily Mm -hmm. thought about and it's it's interesting to to think now about how wrong that was and how sort of like naive that was but we'll see moving forward if maybe um you know this movement pushes us closer
0: yes we'll see but it's going to be a long time in the future because one of the things that's true is that you know Um, The minority power, which is both a partisan minority power, you know, a president and his party brought to power by a minority of voters, but also that white patriarchal minority power, they have a real grip on the mechanisms that can suppress the dissent of the masses. And that's what we're looking toward in our future. This is a lifelong battle. You and I are going to live our entire lives fighting this battle. And, you know, we may not live to to see major victories, or we may. I hope we will, I'm, you know. But it was an aberration, that period, where we were taught, especially, you know, I'm a middle-class white woman who had access to certain kinds of gains that had been made by the social movements that had preceded my birth. And... It was a it was a pernicious and seductive lie that was meant to suppress further disruption to the power system, this lie that we had gotten past our all our past inequalities. And that was the aberration. The truth is that the struggle to make America a better and more just place for more people has been a process that has unfolded over centuries and will unfold centuries ahead,
1: I hope, if we survive. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Women Belong in the House. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends. If you didn't, or if you have suggestions for how we can improve, please let me know. We'll be back on Tuesday featuring another inspiring candidate. In the meantime, go vote. Early voting is now open in many states, including North Carolina. In some places, you can even register or fix your registration in case anything's awry. Let's make our voices heard. Still listening? Here's a special treat from our friends at A Picture's Worth. What you're looking at is a picture. picture You're looking at a picture of I remember my own worries
2: and my own fears. And it captures a moment in my life when I was being really brave in a lot of other ways. Think about it. The power of a single picture, a single scene captured from a single vantage point. It can stop us in our tracks, spark forgotten memories, unleash emotions, and even shape our perception of history. I'm Elissa Yancey, and I'm proud to welcome you to A Picture's Worth and our first project, Running for Our Future in each episode, we'll tell the stories behind images supplied by a woman who is living in America's heartland and who, in this historic year filled with more female candidates than ever before, is also running for office. We've been working for more than a year on this project, learning and gathering stories about pictures women have had tucked away in photo albums, displayed on mantelpieces, and stored on their smartphones. The stories you'll hear may surprise you and inspire you and even though they're non-political by design these images and the narratives behind them help illuminate some of the many reasons women choose to run for office in the first place so welcome to a fresh approach to add women's stories to the pages of history by sharing their pictures worth with you and with the world